Today's sermon text is coming from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went ahead and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Let's pray together. I pray, Father, that you would grant us to see and savor, admire, and treasure, and worship Jesus as he weeps Tears of sovereign mercy over Jerusalem. And I ask that you would give us tears with him. In his great name I pray. Amen. Well, before we get back to Romans 9 in two weeks, the week after Easter, God willing, I wanted to... Uh, give a message, I hope suited for Palm Sunday, and a spillover of one of the projects that I was working on while I was away. Uh, The book, God willing, will be called Don't Waste Your Life, and this message is a spillover from that book. It's all... Also a spillover from about five or six other things, and it might help you to hear what they are. Uh, It's a spillover from conversations with John Erickson about what it means to have a vision for a ministry of mercy in the city. It's a spillover from conversations with my son Benjamin about what it means to be a merciful person on the street in Philip's neighborhood. It's a spillover from reading Tim Keller's book, 
He's a pastor in New York. The book is called Ministries of Mercy, The Call of the Jericho Road, which I hope many of us will be reading in the months to come. It's a spillover from a seminar that I did on prayer and fasting and meditation a few weeks ago that some of you attended, and particular one part of that seminar where I um, asked my own self particularly what it meant to fellowship with Jesus, the risen Christ, now, and what it will mean to face him someday, face to face, and hear him ask questions like, um, what about what about the people that asked you for money on the street? How did you respond to them? What are you going to answer? This Jesus who surrendered his body to spitting and to shame and torture and death to undeserving sinners like you and me so that we could be drawn into everlasting joy. This Jesus asks you about um, how did you respond to panhandlers and beggars and street people and drunks and drifters. What are you going to say to Jesus when he asks you about that? I remember asking the class that one evening in the seminar. And I found coming to my mind, I hadn't planned to say it at all. It just came to my mind and it struck my own heart. It's not where it came from. It's one of those things you might call prophecy if you believed in that sort of thing, which I do. And so I heard coming out of my mouth, I don't think you will feel good about giving the Lord the answer. I never got taken in by one of those people. I was shrewd. In fact, I figured out some really key questions that always exposed their duplicity. I don't think you will want to give that answer to the Lord. Because I think what you would hear back from him if you give that answer is these words. That's a really good imitation of the world. That's really good. How'd you pull that off? Even sinners only give to deserving people. The Pharisees are good at being shrewd. Way to go. What a good imitation of the world. I don't think so. I don't think you're going to want to hear that. So I don't think you're going to want to give that answer. So to spill over from that seminar, one more thing. It's a spillover from a conversation I had with Noel at Annie's parlor Thursday a week ago about the next 10 years, if God gives us 10 years. It's good to do states of the marriage, states of life. It's good to, every few years, maybe weeks, get away and just look at each other and say, how are we doing? We want it to be this way for 10 more years? In the neighborhood, the question pointed, what Christ do we want Talitha to remember of her mommy and daddy when we're gone on the streets 
at 11th Avenue and 18th Street. Do we want her to remember, say, when she's 30 and we're dead, which we probably will be? They were really shrewd. They were clever. They were sharp people. Never got sucked in. Or will we want her to remember, my mom and dad were really merciful. They got taken advantage of all the time. Never minded it. (laughs) That's an easy question to answer. That's really easy. Not easy to do, but really easy to answer. Right? Mom and dad, it's really easy to answer. So that's where it's all coming from. I chose this text in particular. Uh, It's a Palm Sunday text. Palm Sunday, you know what that is. It's It's the day set apart in the church year to mark and celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. The last week of his life, he's coming here to die. And so it's to mark that great entrance. And it's a day full of great insight and full of great error. Mistake. The insight was, he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Here he comes. He's the king. That's true. That was right. Messiah, son of David, ruler of Israel. Fulfillment of all of God's promises. That's right. You got it right. Going to come. He's going to get rid of this pilot character. And he's going to sit on his throne and the Romans will fall back and we will have our land. And it didn't happen that way. It wasn't going to happen that way. And that was the big mistake. He was going to sit on the throne. We sang it. I hope you heard it. He was going to move to the throne through mockery and spitting and betrayal and abandonment and rejection and... Nails and spear and nakedness. And it wouldn't be the throne of Jerusalem. It would be the throne at his father's right hand. Remember the first sermon Peter preached after he ascended into heaven, after Jesus ascended into heaven. This God, this Jesus, God raised up and exalted at his right hand. Acts 2. How the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. So right now, Jesus is on the throne of the universe. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He is reigning. He is king. Oh, Palm Sunday was the movement toward a throne. It was. That was the truth. That was the insight. But they had it so wrong. So wrong about how he would get there and the timing of it all. Palm Sunday is a day of great insight, great joy, and great error. Within days, they would kill him. And then within 40 years, that city would be obliterated by the Romans. 70 A.D. Now... The focus this morning that I want to give because of all those spillover thoughts 
is to the verse of his response to all this blindness and hostility that he knew was coming. Verse 38, it had already come, this hostility. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they respond, verse 39, the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He knew what was coming. There it was, right in his face. He knew that these Pharisees would get the upper hand. They would be persuasive. The people would fall into line with their religious leaders by and large. And he would be rejected and crucified and the city would be destroyed. Let's read it. Verses 43 to 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So it's coming. He knows it's coming. He knows they're not going to recognize this visitation of the divine in his own person. God had visited them. God had visited them in Jesus Christ, his son, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to his own. And his own received him not. The stone the builders looked at, contemplated how it would fit in the temple they were building by their righteousness, and they rejected it and threw it on the ash heap of Golgotha. That's what he knew was coming. And the question I have is, how did he respond to that? Verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you even knew, literally, if you only knew, would that you even knew, if you only knew the things that make for peace this day, but now they are hidden from your eyes, and he wept. He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Now, how shall we describe these tears? How do you describe them? What do you say about them? It's amazing. Jesus only cried a couple times in the Bible. How shall we describe them? And you can see from the title, the, the way I tried to, Palm Sunday Tears of Sovereign, Sovereign Mercy. So let me go back to the prayer I prayed at the beginning. I have two goals for this sermon. God willing, they would happen by his spirit. One is that we would admire Jesus for these tears. Really admire him. Come away from this service saying, there are a lot of ways you could say it, but here's the way I've been praying it. That when you get in your car on the way home, or the first time you get alone today, you say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I hope you'll say that. I'll bet, I'll bet there are a hundred people in this room who haven't said that for years. Now you've said, we adore you when you sing, things like that. But 
You've probably never gotten alone with Jesus and let those words come out of your mouth. Because of those tears and because of the context of those tears, I love you. So that's one of my prayers. And the other prayer I have is that as we love him, as we see him, as we embrace him and treasure him and savor him, we'll be like that. We'll be like that. So let's admire him together for a little bit and then talk about ourselves. First him, then us. You know what makes him so admirable? It's the way Jesus brings together things that for most of us seem like opposites. Or at least things that are very contrary and intention. Things like sovereignty and tender-hearted mercy. We can kind of imagine a mighty warrior, sovereign. And we can imagine tender-hearted mercy. But where do you look on planet Earth for the person who combines sovereign power with tearful, tender-hearted mercy? And I'll tell you where. Nowhere. Not one religion, not Islam, not Buddhism, not Hinduism, not secularism, not New Age spiritism. Nowhere do you find a Christ like this. Or a person who comes close to this. And that's why he's so peerless, so matchless, so amazing. He brings together things that we can't get together, and yet we know they belong together. That's what the fullest God-man, human, would look like. And there he is, crying as the sovereign. Now, you might ask, okay, we understand you like to talk about the sovereignty of God, so maybe you're just bringing that here and plastering it over the tears to make it fit. Well, let's just test that thought and look at three pointers to the sovereignty of Jesus. I do believe in the unity of the Bible. I believe if I find a Jesus in Romans 9, it's going to be the same Jesus as Luke 19. And so I do admit that I assume the unity of the Bible as a preacher. I try to argue for it and give reasons for it, but when I preach, I assume it. But I'm going to look at the text and see whether there are pointers here. Verse 37, there are three of them. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. All the mighty works they had seen were bringing out these praises, these, these ascriptions of, of glory in the highest to this man. What had they seen? They had seen him by one touch make leprosy vanish. They had seen blind eyes open and deaf hear and lame walk. They had seen water turn into wine. Water had done lots of interesting things for Jesus. He walked on it. He turned it into wine. He made it go flat when it was wavy. He spoke to demons and with a word they left. They obeyed him. He raised people from the dead because he's the Lord of life. 
They had seen these things. That's the Christ they were saying. Come, come king. Because that Christ cannot be stopped. Pilate's going to fall before that Christ. (laughs) If demons obey him, then the demon on the Roman world will obey him. He's unstoppable. So there's pointer number one. These mighty works that they were celebrating were the works of a sovereign Christ who was about to cry. Second, verse 38. Blessed is the king, mark that word, who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, mark that, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So here was the one they were saying, who under the authority of the Lord was coming as the king of kings, the king of Israel. How shall we describe it? Isaiah 9. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now mark those words. Never ending, ever expanding kingdom. Let some physicists get a hold of that. No end temporally and no end spatially. And the zeal of God behind it. That's the Christ coming. That's what they were saying. The king is here. Thirdly, verse 40. The Pharisees had said, tell them to stop. Tell him to stop giving you these incredible accolades. And he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Why? Because the universe was created for the praise of Jesus Christ. You exist, this building exists. That Jesus Christ might be made much of in this universe. And if we refuse the praise, the rocks will get the joy. How so? Because he's sovereign and can make rocks talk. He will get his due one way or the other because he's God Almighty. Now... I don't think I'm reading into this text when I name this sermon the tears of sovereign mercy. Not reading into this text. This is Christ. This is the King. This is one who can take either stony hearts or stones on the ground and make them praise Him. In verse 41, He weeps. Now, it is an irony, therefore, isn't it? Maybe not. Seems like one. That so many people use this verse to deny his sovereignty. (laughs) Look, he's crying. He's crying. So clearly, as he cries over Jerusalem, 
He's frustrated that his plans didn't happen. He's brokenhearted that what he wanted to happen isn't happening. And it breaks his heart. You can't see that in this text if you have eyes. That's just human manipulation. Don't you remember what Jesus said a few weeks earlier? Chapter 18. Listen to this. This is 1831. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything written, planned, everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. That's Jesus talking. Nothing is surprising this Jesus. These tears are not coming because his plans have failed. His plans are being fulfilled, indeed, in the tears, and not in spite of them. Do you remember what Jesus said about his parables? You know, I think this is probably the reason it says uh, at the end of verse 42. He's crying as he says this, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Would today that you, Bethlehem, knew the things that make for peace, he would say. Tears running down his cheeks. But now, they are hidden. They are hidden from your eyes. Do you remember what he said about his parables? Listen, Luke 8, 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. He was, he was handing them over to their own hardness and this was judgment. It was God's design and his plan was on track. We've seen it already in Romans 9. Sovereign mercy, haven't we? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But that's not the point I want to make today. The point I want to make today is he cried. This sovereign Christ weeps over hard-hearted, perishing Jerusalem as they fulfilled his plan. It is unbiblical and wrong to make tears of mercy a contradiction with the serenity of sovereignty. I'll say it again. It is unbiblical and wrong to read in or force a contradiction between tears of mercy and the serenity of sovereignty. Jesus was serene in sorrow and sorrowful in sovereignty. His tears are the tears of sovereign mercy. And therefore, his sovereign power is more admirable and more beautiful. 
It's the harmony of things in Jesus. It's the pulling together of sovereignty and heartfelt, tender-hearted mercy. We admire power more when it is merciful power. And we admire mercy more when it is mighty mercy. The most admirable pictures on television these days are not bombs exploding. Anybody can do that. It's a soldier with a baby in his arms. That's the picture. A soldier with a baby in his arms and tears running down his cheek. That is the picture that gets us close to the center of reality. Well, let's move from Christ to ourselves now in these last few minutes. I want us to be like this. Not sovereign. (laughs) Only one sovereign. But having a sovereign like this, how can we not long to be like this, right? If the Christ weeps, how shall his followers be hard-hearted? So, I want to uh, point to three kinds of mercy that I want more, and I, I think you would want more of, and I want you to want more of. First, Jesus' mercy is tenderly moved. I'm just trying to get inside and say, what happened? What's it like? What's it like to be merciful? And I see three things in Jesus. One, he is tenderly moved. That's what I see in the tears. He's moved. He feels the sorrow of the situation even though he appoints the situation. He feels it. And he weeps with authentic sorrow over the painful situation he's confronting. His sovereign plan is not wrecked on the rocks of human autonomy. But that doesn't make him heartless. He feels the very situation he has ordained to come to pass, that he might die. He really feels sorrow. I think there's a deep inner peace beneath that sorrow, no doubt. You see it breaking out through the Holy Week. Um, So it doesn't mean that you can't cry if you believe in the sovereignty of God. In fact, I think if you believe in the sovereignty of God the way the Bible pictures it, you'll be a, a person easily moved to tears. And so my my first point is, would you all appeal to God? Would you all pray with me and for me and for yourselves that you would be easily moved to tears? Some of you haven't cried for years. Some of you have cried recently over your losses. And many of you have, oh, maybe this is too strong. Some of you have never cried over anybody else's losses but your own. You know, if you haven't cried in the last year or two over somebody else's losses, you're probably too wrapped up in yourself. And I'm not condemning you. I'm a lot like that. I'm preaching mainly to me. John Piper uh, is more prone to criticize stupid people than to cry over pitiful people. I know that. I don't like it about myself. And so I I just speak to those of you who are like me, and 
worse, better, wherever you are, and say, on this first point of mercy, let's pray that we be tender. Are you willing to do that? I don't ask you to raise your hand, but inside, raise your hand like this. I'm willing to pray this afternoon that I would be a more tender-hearted person. And all I mean by that is when you see pain, that you feel mercy toward it rather than feeling... How'd they get themselves into that fix? In fact, I was thinking here about meeting the Lord again. I think a lot about meeting the Lord these days. I, I think the more sweet your fellowship becomes on this earth, the more you think about meeting Him face to face. And then when you start meeting, thinking about meeting Him face to face, you start thinking about all the questions He might ask and the kind of answers you might give. And, and I thought, what if He asked me, how did you feel about the suffering around you? How did you feel about the suffering around you? I don't think I'll feel good answering. I saw through how most people got themselves into their poverty by their stupidity or their sin. I saw through that. Because I I think Jesus is going to respond to that by saying, I didn't ask you what you saw through. I asked you what you felt. So I'm asking you, how do you feel about the suffering you see in Iraq? And how do you feel about the suffering of an alcoholic or a divorced person? Is your, is your knee-jerk reaction to say, they got themselves into that fix? Well, everybody for whom Christ died got himself into that fix. Right? So I don't want to be like that. So pray for your pastor and pray for yourselves. That's the first point. Mercy is easily moved. Ask God to make you tender. You don't sit there saying, oh, I've got a different personality. You know, I, I, I had a tough home or no home. And my dad, I never saw him cry in his life. Don't, don't, don't talk to me like that. I know it's hard. Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. Just ask him. I'm not going to say it's easy. In fact, at the end, I'll stand down here, prayer team people will be here. I would just like a lot of people to come and just say these words. Would you pray for me that that happened to me? That I become a tender-hearted person? I'm not a very tender-hearted person. I'm a pretty hard person. Pretty, pretty thorny person. Bristle. Would you, would you just ask God to give me some of that spirit? And we'll do it. That's what we'll do. And God will work. I take a while, but he will work. Second thing about mercy is that it is self-denying. Not ultimately. (laughs) So much reward awaiting Jesus for the joy set before him to sit at his father's right hand and one day to bring his bride to himself. Oh, there's joy on the other side of self-denial. But... He walked through Thursday and Friday and into the tomb on Saturday. He walked through massive self-denial, and so should we. Who would be my disciple? Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So, mercy is self-denying. It contemplates a need, 
And then it contemplates the possibility of some comfort and some ease and some security that I could have if I don't go to it. And it denies the comfort, the ease, the security and goes to it. That's what mercy does. So not only is mercy a feeling thing, it is a pretty rugged, serious, deep, strong denial of what I would like to do in the next five minutes in order that I might love doing the bigger, harder thing and have joy beyond as that person and I meet him together, maybe. Oh, man. Risk. Risk is so crucial in the Christian life. I wrote a whole chapter in this book, Don't Waste Your Life on Risk, called Risk is Right. Better to lose your life than waste it. That's the subtitle. I like to talk for a half an hour about risk. A pregnant woman screaming beside a car at a checkpoint. Help! Help! And the soldier inside. It's a trick. But maybe it's not a trick. It's a trick. It's a, but maybe it's not a trick. Okay, Christian. You take that risk. We won't finish the Great Commission without that kind of risk. All they can do is dispatch you to paradise. And you won't kill anybody in the process. Third and finally, mercy is not only tenderly moved, it is not only self-denying, it really helps people. It really does things that help them. Jesus saw the sin of the world, the brokenness of bodies, and hell looming, and he moved to solve it. Moved toward the cross to get himself on it. To fix it. And it can be fixed this morning for everybody in this room by the simplest act of faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Bring your unbelieving friends next week to hear that. Bring them. Bring them to hear that. So, what will it be for you? I just close by asking, how are you doing in your ministries of mercy individually? You got a ministry of mercy? A little simple thing. Just a little simple thing that you, you regularly practice. A little phone call or just something where you're just moving out of yourself towards a need. Just what's, or I ask you single folks who have roommates and housemates, how are you doing as a group? How's you, you and your roommate got an idea to do together in the neighborhood or do together in, through compassion or through Action International? Some idea that the roommates, the housemates can all kind of team up to do or how you doing as a family mom and dad what you want your kids to see this is where Noel and I did some practical planning about the next months and years about what more we might as a family do so that we're moved and self-denying and helpful and how we doing as a church we've had a long way to go don't we Let's be better. Let's do better at this. So I close with these two reminders. My prayer for this message is that you go out loving Jesus more because of tears of sovereign mercy. Look how this Christ gets it together. There's none like him in the world. So all afternoon, just be worshiping Jesus. And my other prayer is that seeing him, loving him, cherishing him, you would be like him and that you would be more moved emotionally by the needs around you 
and that you would deny yourself some securities and comforts and ease in order to move toward the needs and that you would be helpful, that you would change some things in this world in the name of Christ and for his glory. So, let's pray. Father in heaven, I simply ask you to do those two things. Help us by your sovereign power to worship you, to worship Christ, to adore him, to say this afternoon in the privacy of our solitude, Jesus, I love you for your tears and I love you for your sovereignty. I love you for your mercy and your might. And then, Lord, make us more like that, I pray, as a church, as families, as clusters of folks who live together, and as single individual people. Make us more like that. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.